0: Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation.
3: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
0: Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
1: Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to be in your home, and your car, and your truck, and your place of work. It's Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Got a great show coming up. We've got our Professor Guru later, Gardening Guru. Wally Richards, busy time in the garden now. Oh, my goodness, I'm working hard to keep up with my little garden. It's just new. And then we've got an old pal of mine, uh, Roger Beatty, uh, and he's going to be explaining what these retailers are doing with what are called rebates, where you have to pay the retailer as a supplier to have them sell your goods. just doesn't sound right, does it? Now That's on today. Remember, you can send me a text 2057, email me inbox at RadleyCheck.radio Thank you for tuning
0: in. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am.
1: You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can text me 2057 and you can email me at inbox at RadleyCheck.radio Well, I think you're going to appreciate the story. It amazes me that this can happen. And to explain what it's all about, it's this fixed issue of rebates where suppliers have to pay, I think they do it for supermarkets. Um, And in this particular case, we're talking about farmlands where the shop demands a payment from those supplying them to put your product on their store shelf, and the customers can't know about it. It's like a, well, I'd call it a backhander to sell your product rather than here's what the customers want, we make a margin, and we'll supply what customers want. No, no, we'll supply, we'll, we'll sell those products if they pay us to sell them. Find that tricky. And in discussing it, we've got a very, very long term and a very special friend of mine who I've known for coming up for 50 years. And his name is Roger Beattie. And he's a serial entrepreneur. And I'm thinking he's been a fisherman. He's been a power fisherman. He's a farmer, sheep, beef, and would you believe it? He farms wickers. He produces a wild cosywear, which are woolen products. He farms blue pearls in Akaroa Harbor. He owns giant kelp quota and he harvests and processes live kelp. And along with his brother, Ivan, he has the family business, which his dad started. I think his name was Doug Beatty. Beatty insulators. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thank you, Rodney. Did I cover off enough of your entrepreneurial activities? You, you did, more. Of...
4: Yeah. yeah. Let's not confuse them with anything more. <laughs> well, what is it
1: that makes an entrepreneur? Because we need more of them. We've got too many people going off to school, studying hard, studying hard, getting into university, studying hard, And coming out as lawyers and accountants, all good things, all necessary things. But we need creative people who start businesses and build businesses, which is what an entrepreneur does. They're the engine room of growth. You're one. Where where does entrepreneurialism come from? How do you inculcate it? How do you develop it? Because we seem to be smashing it out of people every which way.
4: Um, I think it's different for different people, but certainly government can uh, hinder entrepreneurship by getting in the way. Um, Sometimes that getting in the way just makes people more stubborn. I think it's... I think it could be genetic. I think it might might even go back to sort of the primal days when we were hiding in the cave and you know the three sons and the couple of daughters in the cave were were, you know, listening to mum and she was saying, No, don't go out, you'll get bitten by the tiger. (laughs) And the one renegade son. You know, they were starving and there was a tiger outside and he picked up a spear and he ran outside and, you know, got his arm bitten but killed the tiger, you know. And it's that it's that entrepreneurial progress and, you know, those, you know, going back to the you need, you need You need the
1: ones that fit into society and are the cogs in the machine to make it work. But the entrepreneur, of which I'm not one, sadly. I the... think you are more of an entrepreneur than you think, Oh, Oh, well, that's kind. I hope so. They're it's the gone. ones. You're an
4: intellectual that... entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, they're Rodney. the ones that come along and say, "Hang on, I can put these cogs together in a better way and make a better clock." You know?
4: Yeah, it's amazing. true. I mean, there's different levels of entrepreneurship. There's there's those that go, Well, I'm not even gonna have cogs in a clock. Yes. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna invent something completely different and it's digital. Yes. Or you know, a different way of farming marine species. Your that, dad, your dad was Doug, right? Yeah, Doug, And he was a he was he a serial inventor. And <laughs> I remember once somebody copied one of his <coughs> electric fence insulators and he was a bit pissed off. He wasn't really pissed off, but he was a bit annoyed. Careful with the and, language. And, and, and yeah, no, he, he never swore. Just
1: remember me. with language, Roger, think of it like this. We're in lovely people's homes. Right. So we yeah. be respectful. It's yeah. not just you and me talking.
4: Yeah, okay. And he he um he just said, Well, we'll just develop something better.
1: Isn't that great? I gotta tell everyone, I met Roger at university, and I'm gonna say it was 1975. Yes, it was. So that's a while ago, and Roger was running around the university. And um, I guess some people were drinking and cavorting. And Roger was uh, working full-time for the Social Credit Party to get support on the university. And when I came back the second year, there was no Roger. I didn't know him that well. <laughs> and I said to everyone, oh, what happened to that funny fellow, Roger Beatty? He was a character. And they said, oh, didn't you hear? I said, no. I oh, missed all his exams. Oh, dear, did he? Was he stupid? No, it must be. And he didn't do the work. What's he doing? Oh, he's gone to sheep shearing school. And last we heard, he was out on the Chatham Islands shearing sheep. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what a terrible fate because spending over shearing sheep all day. That's a
5: terrible, terrible
1: thing to have to do for the rest of your life. And then I thought, oh, my goodness. To do that, I'd never been to the Chatham Islands, but it sounded like inhospitable. And then you knock off work after shearing sheep all day, and you go home and you're in the Chatham Islands. And I thought, let that be a lesson to me. (laughs) to pass my exams. Well, years later I meet Roger and he's employing all those people, including me for a while, who had studied, who had worked hard and got their degrees and presented themselves onto the job market as accountants, as scientists, as policy people, as managers, as lawyers. Roger came back, employing them all to work in his many businesses. And I thought, ha, ha, how did they work? And I don't think this is a mistake to say this, compared to everyone else that had got their degrees, rich. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, Roger? Sometimes going off the rails or failing at something, is the best thing that can ever happen.
4: That's true. Um, My break on the Chathams came when um, quotas came into power and it was a change in fisheries regime. And the fishery previous to the quota system starting had been managed by five companies having a share of a certain number of canned power that could be exported. And they had, you know, they had a monopoly on it and they were holding the price down. As soon as quotas came in, there was a restriction on the amount of power that could be caught. And we, the power divers, started lobbying and we worked out where the, the weaknesses were and we organized different meetings and you know beat up on the bureaucrats and the politicians, and eventually, a couple of years later, we had a 500% increase in price because these guys were ripping us off. So that's where I learned about what can happen when you've got an outfit ripping you off or outfits ripping you off and when you expose the truth, good things happen.
1: Yes, well, good for you. And you've had many, 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 many fights. Um, mostly with government trying to knock you around, and you're up for the you're up for the fight. Tell us, listeners will be interested in this two things before we get into the heart of this matter. Listeners will be very interested, I think, in your woolen products. Tell us about the woolen products that you've got and you sell, because that's quite something.
4: Well, this is one of the products I'm wearing now.
1: They so. can't see. This is on audio. It's only you. Oh, and okay, I. right.
4: Okay, so I'm wearing.
1: I would have shaved if I was going to be <laughs> welcomed into the listener's home.
4: Well, I've got to tell
1: um, you, I'm living off the grid, as you know. Right. It snowed this morning, and it's been cold. And I thought, oh. Shaving in cold water, Roger won't mind.
4: (laughs) Not at all. So our wild products, well, funnily enough, going back to those shearing days um, on the Chathams, I did a season shearing for the Tunganus and a couple of other families out there and had a great time. And then I got a contract culling wild sheep on Pitt Island. And there were about, I don't know, five to 8,000 wild sheep. And I culled about 3,500 of them over about an 18-month period, along with a few other people. And, um, you know, that was a great time that I had out there. <coughs> and towards the end of that culling program, I thought, heck, these sheep are tough. They've, uh, they're running with big Romney weathers, which are, castrated Rams and that that don't have a lamb so they don't have a seasonal requirement of needing a lot of food coming into lambing and there were skewer gulls and pigs yet every lamb was born almost running as the locals would say <laughs> and and towards the end of that program I thought I need to farm some of these so When my wife Nikki and I bought the farm Coai Vale on Banks Peninsula, we we got some of these sheep in. And and at our peak, we were running about two and a half thousand pit island wild sheep. And the wool we um, got off them is um, quite unlike any other wool because it's designed for the sheep rather than designed to be heavy and to produce a lot of it and to be able to go through a processing machine quickly. Mm. So this wool is very bulky. Um, It's got a helical crimp. It's a twisted fibre, and processors hate it. But the very reason that it's fantastic for sheep is it's fantastic for people. So it's incredibly lightweight, traps a lot of air, And it's really cozy. And it also, when you blend it with a lustrous fiber like possum, it produces quite a strong and uh, luxurious feeling product. And then we put a little bit of nylon in our socks, for instance, just to give it strength. And that market's growing flat out.
1: Isn't that great? And how do you stop? your sheep from interbreeding with local sheep. Is that a problem? Or well, I guess you've got fences for that.
4: We just have lots of rams. And our focus now is away from the wild sheep to another breed of sheep called Bohepis. And they were bred up through the wild sheep by Ag Research for mm. low cost, easy care. Um, sheep, and and they've got short tails, bare backsides, um, and we're now running about 2,500 of those. And we've now got them at Lincoln University on a $6 million study looking at regen ag compared to conventional ag. So that's fantastic.
1: Well, yeah, you're a great entrepreneur ahead of your time and looking after the planet. I have to say you kindly gave me a hat. And it's a lightweight hat. And it's, listeners won't know this, but I have less hair than I used to have, Roger. <laughs> and I can't go out without a hat on my head even in midsummer. But in winter, I put that little hat on that you gave me. Oh, my goodness. You don't even know you have it on. It's so warm. So Wonderful. And I've got to say, quite stylish. Thank you, Rodney. If listeners want to, we've got a lot of knitters listening. If listeners can they buy your wool and knit with it?
4: We do have some, but our focus is on our hats, blankets, okay, jerseys, socks. You know, where do you go
1: hair. to find that stuff?
4: Or just type in w y l d wool, and you'll get to us.
1: Great. Okay, Roger, that's a bit of introduction, a bit of advertising (coughs) for you. Um, And another thing I need to ask you on behalf of listeners, we had on a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man who you had many, 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 many years ago described to me in sort of awestruck terms. And I thought, if Roger Beattie thinks this guy is tough, (laughs) oh, my goodness. And that was Mad Mac Macintosh. (laughs) (laughs) We had Mad Mac Macintosh on. You can listen to him on replay if you didn't catch it.
4: What a guy.
1: He's a character.
4: He, He is. And Mad Mac and I broke the monopoly, you know, of the two most important people that, broke the power monopoly. It was Mad Mac and I.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's
4: he's tireless Mac.
1: He's a legend, right? Yeah. I imagine you've got a few stories. We won't run through them now, but I imagine you have lots of great stories and memories of Mad Mac.
4: Yeah, some of them I can't talk about.
1: Well, funny (laughs) enough, he doesn't have a filter. And um, I was a little shocked. Some of the things he told us. (laughs) 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 Basically how he spent his money. Yes. Uh, And um, he sort of lived the, I guess he was, he lived the lifestyle of a rock star when he had head to Las Vegas, right? Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so your father had started a business and invented product and had BT insulators, which when you have an electric fence to keep in stock, or you have these insulators going down the fence, and there's a product called BT insulators, developed over time and further developed by your dad. And now that business is run by you and your brother Ivan. Yeah. And you sell them to farmers.
4: And they're popular, right? They are. Yep. In the particularly in the South Island, hill country and high country. Uh, our permanent insulators would be amongst the most popular.
1: What's special about them that makes them work for Hill and High Country?
4: Oh, because they're the strongest insulator. They're made of low-density polyethylene, and you thread them. And we've got a 50-year guarantee on. Wow. (laughs) Unconditional.
1: (laughs) I've never heard of a 50-year guarantee. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And I imagine your main competitor is a man that I know and enjoy immensely, Bill Gallagher. Yes. Gallagher's, what do they do? And they're all around the world, right, Gallagher?
4: They are, yep. Is that your main competitor? Like, he's big. Yes, yes. And Gallagher's, in the early days, used to sell BD insulators. Oh, really? Yeah, they were in the – (laughs) <laughs> the energizer business first, and then we used to, the Insulators used to sell insulators to them, and then when Dad's patents were running out, they copied a whole lot of his okay. insulators.
1: Okay. Because Bill Gallagher took over the business from his dad and, and, and built it, didn't he?
5: Yes.
1: Um, and like he is around the world, it's a big business based in Hamilton, and you're making your insulators in Christchurch. Yes, yeah. Good for you and your brother Ivan. Oh, my goodness. Now, this is where we get to it because if I'm a farmer and I'm wanting to put up an electric fence and have my 50-year guarantee for my insulators, I head into the shop and load up my ute, right? <laughs> and typically, I'd go to farmlands. Yes, yes. And you supply farmlands. Yes, we do. With BD insulators. And I'd load up and I'd get my wire and I'd I'd get my energizer and I'd get my posts and I'd be wearing my Swandra and my short pants and my boots and I'd head up country and I'd go fencing. Right? Farmlands, which I didn't know, is a co-op. Yes, it is. So was it a co-op put together by farmers? Yes, it was. So um how do I so a, a group of farmers got together, started the business to give themselves a good deal, presumably, and put the money in and made themselves shareholders. yes. So not every farmer is a shareholder. Not like, say, you know, Fonterra or something like that. It's particular farmers that put money into farmlands to start the business.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of shareholders now. It's like tens of thousands of shareholders. And is that can you buy and sell the shares? Um, I think it costs six hundred to join. Okay, and I'm not sure what. The shares are worth.
1: Um, oh, and when you join, you get a discount, presumably?
4: Yes, you get a shareholder price,
1: yeah. Ah, so the incentive to join is I join I join Farmlands as a shareholder. I'm not looking to make money so much out of my shares. Yes. I'm yeah. looking to make savings on when I purchase. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So um, if I'm going to do a, certain, a lot of business with Farmlands, I should sign up. True, yeah. I went to farmlands in Cromwell when I did my fencing, which I um are very proud of, and then I went down to Gold Pine in Cromwell and I found Gold Pine with more stock and more helpful. Are they, are they a what a Gold Pine?
4: Um, they're more a timber rural outfit, um. Farmlands have been and other changing well. over from um, older experienced managers to younger ones.
1: Oh, sounds bad. Sounds dodgy. Now, this is where we get to it. I find this extraordinary. So tell us about you're happily selling BD insulators through farmlands,
4: and then what happens? Uh, you mean about the rebates thing? Or? Yes, absolutely okay. the so thing. Okay, so about five years ago we had our first meeting <coughs> with the category manager for fencing in farmlands and he put
1: – He, he asked you to the meeting or you invited yourself to a meeting? Oh, I'm
4: not sure which way it happened, but probably we asked for a meeting. Yeah. And so my brother and I went along and – we had the meeting and and his thrust was to get us to pay rebates to farmlands as a supplier to farmlands. And we said, well, why would we want to do that? And he said, well, you know, if you want to sell, you know, you need to pay us rebates. And I said, well, look, I I can't get my head around this rebate business, so I asked him if he had explained it a bit more. And he did, and then I said, look, I'm still a bit confused. Would you mind if I went out and canvassed farmers about what they think about supplier rebates going back to farmlands? And he said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. He said, farmers don't understand modern retail. And I said, Are you calling farmers thick? No, no, no. I don't know. I said, well, (laughs) what are you saying? So, But farmers are the shareholders and their customers. I know. I know. And they're in the dark.
1: So farmers are in the dark. I've got to tell you I'm in the dark too. What's a rebate? Okay, a a rebate.
4: There are two types of rebates. One rebate goes from a supplier, for instance, Gallagher, who supply electric fencing gear, to farmlands. And that's, from what I've heard, 10 to 15%. And then another rebate gets paid by farmlands to farmers. And when farmers hear the word rebates, they only know of the rebate going from farmlands to the farmer. There's nowhere on the websites or on the website of farmlands and nowhere in the communication and the annual review um, and any of the communication by farmlands to the shareholders and the customers about the rebates that go from the suppliers of product to farmlands. Now so if I understand this this just stop there.
1: So I come along and I'm selling my insulators or supplying my insulators to farmlands. Yes. And they take a hundred dollars of my insulators and then say, You need to pay me fifteen dollars. Yes. And I say, oh, okay. Then when they come to sell those insulators to the farmer, they say, oh, there's a rebate on these insulators. They won't cost you $100. They'll only cost you $95 or $90 or $85, something less than 100 And they think, good work farmlands because i got a rebate
4: no that's that's not quite
1: how it works okay well tell me how this hundred dollars goes
4: okay so say we had a product that was worth 40 cents um say an insulator was worth 40 cents got it and there was no rebate and say there was a double doubling of the price from the wholesale price to the retail price so it sells say for they eight, would sell 80 cents 80 cents yeah now if you pay a rebate and call it 10 percent um that would be or uh, we'll call it 10 cents yeah um the price would then be the wholesale price would go from 40 cents to 50 cents. And then, if you doubled that for the um, <clears throat> for the markup, say a dollar, but it might not quite be a dollar. But so, in order for the rebate to work um, for the store, the and for the people supplying the insulators, for instance, they have to put the price up to the customer. You're so completely... without rebates, the price might be $0.80, cents, but with the rebate, the price might be $0.90 cents to a dollar. You've completely lost me, Rog. Okay. Price goes from
1: I'm $0.80 telling, cents in, without in the rebates... absin- Can I do this? In the absence of a rebate, yep. Yep. here's my insulator. I'm BD insulators. Here's my insulator for $0.40 cents to farmlands. Yep. Yeah, thank you. They sell it to the farmer for 80 cents and they yep. take a, uh, their 40 cents for selling it and holding yep. it and there, and you take your 40 cents for making it. Yeah. Right? True. Then they introduce rebates. So what happens to your 40 cents then? Um, you were getting paid 40 cents. Now what are you getting paid? 50
4: cents. So you're getting paid more. Of course. Because. You've got to charge more for a start if you're then going to go after the deal is done a month later to pay a rebate back. Oh, oh, I see.
1: So what that I get that. That's a bit you missed in the early discussion. So what what they're saying is we will sell your $0.40 insulator if you give us $0.10. Yes. That's the rebate part. Got
4: That's it. the rebate. But I'm thick. Okay. No, no, no. You're not thick. It's just that it's hidden from everybody, Rodney. And, and what what are you getting for your ten cents? You're getting. Well, we don't pay rebates, so we don't get anything. But <laughs> okay. for the people, so yeah. for the people who do, Rodney, they get more sales. They take other people's products off the shelf. And there's a lessening of competition. Of course. And there's more of a monopoly scenario. And think about it this way, Rodney. A rebate is either a backhander or a kickback.
1: Yeah. But it's not going into the back pocket of someone. It's going into farmland's account legitimately and being accounted for, presumably.
4: Going into head office, Rodney. Into head office. So It doesn't go back to the stores that sold the product. It goes into middle management in farmlands.
1: Okay. So it goes to 50 cents that you supply it for because you have to pay 10 cents to farmlands as a rebate. Yeah. They then sell it. Instead of uh, 80 cents, they do their normal markup and sell it for a dollar. Yeah. And then they might give the farmer a discount and call it a rebate.
4: They give, no. Well, they typically, they may do that, but they also give a rebate back to the farmer. But it's a bit like having things um, Mm -hmm. filtered through a bureaucracy. It's never good for the people. Buying the product.
1: And if you and so they're explaining this to you that you need to pay this rebate. Yes. And you say, well, look, before we do this, we want to talk to our customers and your customers and shareholders to see what they think about this. And they say you can't do that. Because they don't understand it. Well, they, they don't want
4: the truth to get out there, Rodney.
1: They they might be thinking of me.
4: <laughs> they say that
1: because <laughs> I struggled with it, but and farmers don't know this is happening. Of course, they don't. And this is called modern marketing.
4: Yes, and Fletcher's have now apparently pulled out of paying rebates to the likes of. Mida 10 and um, placemakers because the Commerce Commission got involved.
1: And thought it was anti-competitive behaviour. Yes, yeah. So Fletcher's supplied stuff to Mida 10 and yep. would pay a rebate to Mida 10. Yes. Well, I remember, I'm going to be careful how I word this, a prominent ex-rugby player who sold juice coming to see me when I was an MP, and saying they were being killed bringing their product to market, a new product of orange juice, because the supermarkets were wanting them to pay them yes, to sell their product. And he said they couldn't afford to pay them. But if they didn't pay them, then they wouldn't get, their product would be hidden underneath somewhere where you a customer wouldn't see it at eye level, you know what I mean? They didn't get a shake of the salve. So I think it's quite common these rebates in the supermarket business too.
4: It, it is um, with supermarkets. They've got you know other things about you know buying shelf space, um, and I don't know if that is working with farmlands. But you know what they're doing is farmlands are cutting down from 45,000 items that they stock SKUs they call them, individual items, to 9,500 and this was on the recommendation of a report written by one of the big four uh, accounting firms. Of course it was written from the point of view of the executive of farmlands, not from the point of view of the owners or the shareholders or the customers. So
1: you refused, you and your brother and BD Insulators refused to pay the rebates. Yes. Why did you refuse? Because wouldn't that make business sense for you?
4: Well, in some sense it would, but it pushes pushes the price up of a product that's already quite expensive to produce. Our insulators are the most expensive to produce because we use the highest quality plastic. Um, So why have them artificially higher just to um, put money in the back pocket of... Well,
1: isn't it... I'm struggling with it, right? Because going back to the analogy you're happily selling your BD insulators for $0.40. The farmlands are selling them, in our example, to the farmers for $0.80, and they take a $0.40 margin. Yeah, That's to cover their costs and to make a, a profit, a return on their capital. So that's how you think of a business like that working and there's an issue about when you get your 40 cents, whether they pay you when they take the product or when they sell it or what all of that, but just keeping it simple. They could equally say, we're going to take a 50 cent margin. They could. And get their 10 cents that way. They could. And you wouldn't have a problem with that.
4: No, no, not not particularly. Um,
1: because uh, the, it goes up <laughs> 10 cents, Right. But it's out in the open what their margin is, I guess. But instead of taking that 10 cent extra profit margin, they're wanting you to pay 10 cents. As if 10 cents paid up front before they sell the product.
4: No, no, it comes later.
1: So why wouldn't they just put up their margin and call it quits?
4: Well, I'm not sure of why, um, and it, it was suggested by the second person we met in farmlands. He was a contractor brought in to beat us into line, and he wow. had about five very clever ways of trying to get us over the line to say yes to paying rebates. And in the end, he said... Um, in the end, he said, uh, look, if we just put the price up and we'll call it a rebate. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think it's got to do with keeping that information within a smaller group of people. It's got to do with hiding that information from the farmers and the shareholders. We're not it,
1: doing a good job at keeping the secret, then you and I are we?
4: No, no, I'm I'm on the warpath now, Rodney. <laughs> it, this this is going to be out there, um, and it's going to be a hot topic. And farm ends. Um, uh, I've just got all the directors' email addresses, and they will. After this interview, I will be sending them a copy of my letter that I sent to Farmers Weekly to print telling the whole story. And Farmers Weekly are reluctant to print that in their opinion section. And part of that is that um, they do a lot of advertising in Farmers Weekly. Um, of the last amazing? three um, Farmers Weeklies, I've got, um, two of them had half page ads and one of them had a four page ad, so they don't want to annoy um farmlands. Well, so the what? media are not doing its job,
1: no, the they conventional don't. media, no, because this is a this is a if there's a good rational business case for having rebates farmland should be up for explaining it of course particularly when you're co- a cooperative
4: owned by your customers of course <clears throat> and it is a stated aim of farmlands with the second person that we met this contractor said we want to Lift farmland's profit closer to the profit of our biggest um, competitor, PG Rightsons. But PG Rightsons is a private company and they operate differently, whereas cooperatives should be looking after the benefit of the owners, the shareholders, and the people who buy products. Because they make a, as big profits. As a shareholder, do you
1: get a dividend? No. No, you, you, your only gain from being a shareholder is <clears throat> a better price. Yes. And if they're getting a profit, where does that profit go? To the well, moment? I
4: might get a rebate, but it's been fed through the bureaucratic machine, um, head office bureaucracy. So. Well, one
1: thing that we can do is you can also, when this goes on replay, you can send them this, and I'm going to contact Farmlands and see if they'll come on. And so as as of this day, as of this moment, this has been going on for five years.
5: Yeah.
4: It's obviously affecting your business. Of course. In the last six months, we're down 50%.
1: Whoa!
4: Two farmlands alone,
1: and you won't buckle.
4: Hell no, Rodney! <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna smash this rebate con job out of the way, and, and if we smash it for farming, we'll smash it out of the supermarkets as well.
1: So. In this five years you've been arguing this, as a supplier and a shareholder, have farmlands ever offered an explanation for why they have this rebate?
4: <laughs> Not a satisfactory one, Rodney.
1: Well, what's the unsatisfactory ones I've put up?
4: Um, oh, they make no sense, So. I find it difficult remembering nonsensical arguments. I bet. You, you like, ask them, they'll give you their nonsensical arguments, Rodney.
1: Does it involve a lot of modern marketing speak?
4: Pretty much. Yeah. Well, okay.
1: Well, there you have it, um, listeners. Roger Beattie great friend of mine, working away, supplying a product to farmers, selling it through a cooperative, who were there to get the best price for farmers, that's why they're shareholders in this business. But you go along there to sell your product, which has been selling quite happily, and they say, well, we need you to give us a payment for us to supply your insulator. And you say, well, you get your margin. Why would I pay you a rebate, a backhander, if you will? Well, because you will. Well, what happens if I don't? Well, we'll show you. And if you don't, suddenly your sales in six months fall by 50%. Presumably they're being shoved around the corner. And ultimately if they're cutting lines, which lines would they cut? Those lines that are paying rebates or those ones that are not? So it's not then being driven by what the farmers want. It's being driven by head office making decisions for who's paying them extra money. And if you say to them, well, let's take this out to discuss this with our customers and your shareholders and customers. No, 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 no. Because they won't understand modern marketing. It doesn't sit right, Roger, that whole story.
4: No, and it's secretive. It's insidious.
1: So when you and... get your, as a shareholder, when you get the, Farmland's annual report, there's no mention of this.
4: No, no, they mention rebates coming back from Farmland's to farmers and shareholders, but they never, ever mention the rebates going from suppliers to Farmland's. That somehow, though, if
1: you read their accounts, I don't know because you dropped out of university, and um, but I imagine over the years you've learnt to look at a set of accounts and say, Oh yeah, that's that item. There's that item. Do they have a line saying rebates got from suppliers? Uh,
4: not that I've seen, but I haven't had a really good look at their accounts. But <clears throat> it's um, it's not explicit. Um, well known. You, you would you would bet
1: your farm on the average farmer not knowing that this was going on.
4: No, they're going to be uh, more than a little annoyed when they do find out.
1: Mm. Well, we're making a start. There we you are, go. Mate. That was Roger Beter. uh, i got to admit, long-time friend of mine, a man I greatly admire for his energy, his enthusiasm, his business sense, the fact that uh, no one can knock Roger down. Uh, literally. I remember once I went out on the Chathams with Roger and he was doing a lot of fishing and getting a lot of power. And there was a bit of the green monster coming out. And I was a young man. I You know, I wasn't easily cowed. And we went into the one pub in the Chathams with Roger, and there was a bit of aggro. And Roger stood there with this grin on his face while this big guy was sort of about to get physical with him and I was terrified because you looked around this pub and you thought mm, not a lot of support here um, <laughs> Roger just kept smiling and he smiled his way through tough tough business out there sharing and fishing and power diving in the channels well Roger's done all of that and I greatly admire him and he's been successful And he's always been a man that stands up for principle and for openness and from transparency. And he'll do that to his great cost because he won't sell out. So that was Roger Beattie on the vexed issue of rebates. If someone can shed light on rebates, send me a text at 2057, email me at inbox at rallycheck.radio, tell us what you think of them, Tell us whether you think they're a good idea, because I can't see it. I can't see what they do, but we may be missing something. We'd love to hear from you. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Radley Check Radio. Thank you for listening. Rebates, interesting. Sound expensive.
4: This
0: is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on
1: Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please remember, send me a text 2057. I love your texts, love your questions. And email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Regular guest, it's our gardening guru, Professor Wally Richards. Good morning, Professor.
0: Good morning. Good morning.
1: Now, I got to make a plug for you. Mm. Oh my goodness. So I've got to tell you a little gardening story. I've been growing little wee beech trees and I drove all the way down to Invercargill and dragged back 500 little beech trees and I've been growing them for a year and and repotting them in tubs, having great success. And I'm loving my little beech trees to plant out uh, on our property. While I was at the nursery, they had two gigantic beech trees. Oh, I'm going to say two metres high that weren't looking very well. And I got a good price on them. So I threw them in the trailer too. And then recently we went away and they got a bit neglected. And I came back and they were dead, Wally. My two big beech trees were dead. And I thought, well, you know, fair enough. I took a bit of a punt in getting them. And I was about to throw them away. And when my wife said, oh, no, give them a bit of water. They'll be right. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get some of Wally's. Magic botanical liquid. I thought it'll never ever work. These trees are dead. They were the leaves were completely gone. The twigs of the branches of this spindly tree looked dead, and I was literally going to fire uh, throw them on my fire pile. I, I poured I, I mixed it 20, what is it, 20 mils per litre? Yeah. So what do I, you know, and and I and my uh watering can and I gave it into under the ground. I didn't put it over the leaves because they didn't really have any. Do you know within a couple of days, those two beech trees have got are covered in green leaves? Wow. I could not believe it. It was a miracle.
0: Yeah, yeah. Excellent. I could not believe it, Wally. The stories I get back, like I think last week um, we spoke about the lady who um, squashed a kiwi fruit, golden kiwi fruit over, and then watered it with magic botanic liquid, and now she's got Untold kiwi fruit, little seedlings. Um, yeah, interesting, very interesting. Um, I remember one guy contacted me one time, and I think I've said this before. Um, he soaked his pumpkin seed overnight in a solution of MBL and planted it up there. And next day they sprouted. It. It he said it was so quick.
1: Um, it, well, it, I, I would not. I, look, um, you know, you tend to think, oh, Wally's something or other. Oh, yeah, a bit of marketing hype, you know, overblown. I hear your stories and I'm thinking, oh, yeah. I would not have believed this if you'd told me. Right. I would not have believed it.
0: I don't believe you either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know about MBL, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you,
1: so you yeah. know it's possible. anyway, my two beech trees have greened up watering. Can you I was wondering about so I gave it to them I don't know three or four days ago and I've kept them watered. um can you give them too much MBL?
0: um not that I'm aware of no um but you only waste it if you give too much, okay so um it's not going to do any great further advantage. From now on, if you were to spray the foliage once a week, with a spray solution, that would be very good for it. And that's all you need to do. Um,
1: Well, I have to hand it to you, Wally. Um, It brought back two trees that were, I I would say, two metres tall. Yes, because it's up to the top of the shed. They were in bad shape when I got them six months ago. They were even in worse shape when I neglected them while I was away. Right. And I was literally going to put them on the burn pile. And my wife said, I'll give them a water. They might come back. I gave them the MBL. Two days later, green leaves right across them. It was like, it was magic. So there you go, Wally. Um, I'm a convert. And I'm going to go around my 500 beech trees and spray all the leaves with MBL. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And give them a boost. Now, busy time in the garden, Wally. What's on?
0: Oh, my, my goodness. It is. It's full on. Um, the only caution to be concerned about is depending upon where you live, the temperatures are not even. Like, we're still getting a bit of cold stuff happening and there's a nice warm day, etc. Um So outside in your garden, planting the likes of cucumbers, um, aubergines, pumpkins, they're going to kind of sit there and sulk until the mm. temperatures become even, right? Mm. Once the temperatures become even, we say labour weekend, you can plant most things except for those real heat-loving plants, such as cucumbers, right? In a glass house, different story. My yeah. cucumbers are away, laughing and joking and, and telling stories to the, chip, the chilies and the yeah. capsicums and the aubergines. Um, yeah, I grow I um, in one of my glass houses, in fact both of them, um, what they call autopots. It's kind of like hydroponics, but... It's not a flow method where the nutrient goes back into the holding tank. In other words, you have a holding tank, there's a little um, valve that operates without electricity, it's just manual. It opens up, floods the little tray that the pot's sitting in, and uh, the plant has nutrient coming up from the base, right? Yeah. it, it's an interesting way to grow because things like capsicums and you're using um hydroponic solution right so it's super food um and you can grow capsicums as good as you buy in the supermarket nice big green red capsicums right whenever i've tried to grow them in potty mix or out in the garden ah. Uh, no, not big like the supermarket ones, right? Because the supermarket ones, of course, are hydroponically grown mm-hmm. and they have all the uh, food that you could wish for um, and that's why you get the big fruit, right? Um, it's interesting, but it's it's more expensive because... What's the
1: system? I don't understand the system that you've got.
0: Okay, Um well, you have a holding tank, right, in which you put water and nutrients into, and it's a hydroponic solution that you're putting into the tank. Out from the tank runs your pipe, yeah. and then off that pipe comes a small um, 4 millimeter, 8 millimeter pipe, which goes into the bottom of a small tray which holds just one plant. One and pot. the
1: one plant is sitting in its own pot.
0: Yep, it's sitting in that pot. And there's a valve thing, which when it becomes dry, this automatically opens up, allows nutrient to come in, ah. to flood the bottom of the tray, and then it closes. Oh
1: right. wow. So um it, And what's it called? Again, do you buy the whole setup?
0: Yeah, you can buy the whole setup from hydroponic places. They call it auto pots. Auto Uh, pots. Yeah. And for the keen gardener, particularly with the glass house, because you don't want the plants to be rained on, um, they grow very quickly because they've got the max of nutrient. And. Yes, you, you get some incredible results. Like I planted some young tomato seedlings, uh, which would have only been uh, in inches about well, three or four inches high. They are now a metre high in a period of under two weeks.
1: That's almost impossible.
0: Oh, they just grow and grow and grow for sure. Um, now, one of the tricks I'm using this year in my glasshouse, because whitefly are a horrendous problem for people growing tomatoes and stuff in glasshouses. So because a lady told me one time that she protected her stone fruit tree from the grava moss by hanging little bags of cat repellent, Nepheline in the tree the bags of course smell like uh, mothballs and as a result of that it disguised the smell of the tree and she was able to harvest all the fruit with no damage uh, gravel moth is a bit like codlin moth and it's in the northern regions rather than down where you live you don't have that problem so on the same principle as that, instead of using neem granules, which I also put some of those on the top of the pots, um, I hung some bags. And you can yeah. get little bags from the $2 shop, which is a little gauzy bag. You use them for uh, gifts, putting sweets in or something. So I got a pile of them, hung up that. And so far, it's working perfectly. You go in there, and it smells like mothballs. Yeah. And the smell overrides the smell of the um, tomato plants. So whitefly flying by don't know there's any tomatoes in there. Huh.
1: Well, I've um, got my marigold starting to grow now. And right. My, um, do they scare with whitefly or something else for my tomato? Well,
0: once again, the smell of that, we used to do that in days gone by, use marigolds in the glasshouse to create a smell to disguise the smell of the tomato plants. Um, neem granules um, placed on the growing medium, um, the smell of them also helps greatly, um, which is all, all important because later on, if the populations of white fly build up, they become a real problem to get under control. So you've got to get into it early in the piece. First sign of any white fly um, spray with pyrethrum, uh, walleye's neem tree oil, whatever. Keep them under control before they get going. Most important.
1: Well, I've just been Googling while you're talking because I'd never heard of it before, Wally. I'm sorry to be distracted, but I was Googling the autopot and there's quite a few agencies that sell them in New Zealand. They're not cheap. You would have to be a serious gardener.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Do you think, do you, how many, like there's different sizes too. I'm just looking at one particular site and an auto-pot, four-pot starter kit is $270. And so I see what you're saying. It's got this big tank where you must put water and then add the solution, and then you've got four big pots to grow in. Right. And then you've got ones that have, like, 16 pots for $1,100. How many pots have you got, Wally?
0: Um, good question. I I, I don't know. Um, probably about 20 or 30.
1: Oh wow! A twenty-four pot kit here is fifteen hundred dollars. Do you think that's about right?
0: Yeah, um, that that would be about right. And so the idea <laughs> of
1: the idea of them is that you like you'd put your tomatoes in, and then you'd shift them out later, or do you just leave them in the pot growing?
0: No, you leave it in the pot going. Um, the, one of the advantages of it, of course, is as long as um, you've got your tank fairly full, you can go away for a week and, yeah. and it's been watered automatically, right? Yeah. Um, if, if sediment or whatever gets in, there can be a bit of a problem. At times you've got to clear out pipes or unblock things or so forth. Um, they're a little bit hassly, Um, but the results are incredible. And for a person... Uh, even just a couple of pots and a tank, um, you, you can have in a small lean-to glasshouse. You, you can have beautiful capsicums or chilies or whatever. Um, if you go like I do, because of course I've got a shop um, where I can sell chilies and so forth um, through the shop. Um, yeah. So it's like I've got hens, and the surplus eggs get sold in the shop, and so, there's a high demand for them.
1: Well, it looks amazing. And is the valve a mechanical valve, Wally? It's not electronics. Not yeah, no it's battery.
0: mechanical. It, it's um, it kind of it, it, it's a float thing, which yeah. I, when when the level of water or nutrient is up, it opens up and shuts off the flow, and then as the level drops down to no nutrient. Of course, it then drops back and opens and, and allows a flood.
1: Do you put the same solution in whatever the plant, or does it vary according to what you're growing?
0: Um, well, once again, there's no point in growing lettuces in it or those sort of things. So ideally, you're talking about capskin, um, tomatoes, and chilies and aubergine, eggplants, right? Now, all of those have basically the same nutrient value. Okay. okay. So there's no problems. You've just got one, one lot to do. Hydroponics. In hydroponics, you have a holding tank which you put your nutrient in, right? And then it goes out and it feeds all the plants you've got growing. Which is sitting in a trough or whatever, but the nutrient is returned back to the tank. So, over a period of time, the what we call the CF value, which is the electric um, measurement of the nutrient, drops down. Or, in other words, the food content reduces because plants have used it. Right. Yeah. So then you've got to top it up.
5: Yeah.
0: A- and that's where it becomes a little bit more complicated you've got to have a cf meter and you've got to check your ph etc etc so uh, hydroponics is fun great stuff to do but once again a lot more work unless you've got an automatic system which is expensive very expensive the autopot is because the nutrient only gets used once, it doesn't return, um, it's easy to do.
1: Wow. And um, the plants are sitting in what? Potting mix or seed mix uh, or
0: something? In core fiber, like uh, coconut fiber. Oh, wow. So um, it's got to be something that will uh, allow the moisture to rise up easily. And the roots, of course, will penetrate down. And the mix it's used is no food value whatsoever, right? Um, Because the food is coming from the nutrients.
1: It just seems it just seems extraordinary. I'd never seen such a thing, and I, I, um, and tell me about your was it your tomatoes. You put them in there, and tell me the tomato story again.
0: Yeah, well. They grow very quickly, of course, in a glass house, um, yeah. per se. And, yeah, what was it, about two or three weeks ago, little seedlings like you buy in the garden centre, um, out of their pots and so forth, um, into the solution um, or into the containers for the individual. And now I've got stuff up a metre high, and, and that is in round about two to three weeks.
1: So, um, funny enough, buying one for $270 and having four good tomato plants, it's, it's not an uneconomic proposition, is it?
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's good because they will, in a glasshouse, once again, depending upon the variety, they'll produce well into the winter. Yeah. So, so you can start off early. Um, and the glass house makes a difference. If you didn't have yeah. a glass house, of course, outside you could not do it because yeah. the pots would get rained on, that would yeah. disturb the whole uh, yeah. nutrient value, etc. Yeah. Um, <coughs> rain on the foliage is good because it's nitrogen, but rain going into the pot, and then the next thing it gets too much water in the base of the container, the yeah. auto pot. And then that then starts to come out. And once the water starts to flow, it's like sucking petrol out of a tank. Once it starts going, it doesn't stop. And and so all your tank is lost. It just runs out. So you don't want to water from the top.
1: Well, um, I think that's that's an amazing thing. And so you would extend your growing season in a glasshouse with an autopot compared to not having an autopot.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And you're also going to get uh, faster growth uh, and probably better tomatoes because they're getting everything that they need.
0: Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, And besides that, what you do, of course, to the plants themselves in there, you spray them with magic botanic liquid. Mm. So the nutrients that we're feeding to the plants has got a a good NPK um, yeah. value with other minerals but it hasn't got everything yeah. and i've tried on a couple of occasions putting magic botanic liquid into the uh, nutrient solution in the tank but it seems to block up um, for some reason. reason it cause problems but you spray the foliage um, yeah. with the mbl and then they grow much quicker again
1: goodness me oh it's so exciting What else is going on in the garden now, Wally?
0: Okay. One of the problems this season, um, and I've had myself and others. You remember we talked about um, using the new copper nutrient um, on our stone fruit trees for curly leaf? Yes. Well, I've been very diligent about doing it, and, and I have a container made up there. I'm reasonably pleased with the results because I've got some curly leaves still uh, on some leaves and other leaves are perfect. Um, And once again, we suggested using the cell strengthening kit um, for not only the psyllid problem, but also on the uh, garlic. Um, And once again, this season, um, first time, uh, even using it diligently, the foliage has got some bloody rust on it, right? Now, I've thought about this, and, and I think the reason is very simple. We've had too many overcast, too many cloudy, hazy days, not enough direct sunlight, and too much rain, right? So, a composite of that has put the plants in distress. When plants are in stress, it's like ourselves. If we get stressed, we catch a cold. I've caught a cold. <laughs> and the same thing applies with plants. They're more susceptible to diseases when they are in stress, and the stress is lack of sunshine, which they need to create carbohydrates. So once again, the old trick, go and get yourself a jar of molasses Tablespoon of molasses, dissolve it into a litre of hot water to make it dissolve and nicely, and then when it cools down, put it into um, a trigger sprayer and go and spray the foliage of your plants with that. Free carbohydrates, which the plants don't have to synthesize, photosynthesize from sunlight, and as a result of that, we can get our bulbs to um, form better uh, with the garlic, and we can um, help. See, with my stone fruit tree, I'm I'm happy. There's a good amount of foliage there. On this is mm-hmm. a little nectarine tree. It's got a quite a good fruit set as well. Now it's a matter of holding those fruit, and the only way the the fruit will hold is if um, the tree can get enough energy from the sun to hold the crop. If they can't, then the crop will start to drop and then you have no crop, right? So by spraying the foliage, even the ones that have got a bit of curly leaf on with carbohydrates, and you can water molasses into the soil as well so it can be taken up by the roots. Do that and the tree will respond and the garlic should be better the interesting thing too when you do something like that and you you could do it on your tomato plants too um so it makes it better um i remember hearing a story from my partner in the philippines and and i thought this is silly but they have a fruit over there it's a i forget what it's called it's a great big fruit anyway and she said the fruit had no flavor to it of any consequence and then somebody said in a full moon you've got to sprinkle sugar underneath the tree and she did that a, a jackfruit it was a jackfruit a, and the jackfruit had lovely flavor the sugar carbohydrates mm. why the full moon god only knows it's probably witches out there you know and the yeah but um, it works uh, but yeah, it, it worked.
4: Um,
1: so a plant can absorb not just water and CO two through its leaves. It will with that water bring in simple sugars?
0: Yeah, yeah. And the foliage gets bigger because the plant goes, oh, this is freebie. And, and if you're doing it regularly, like uh, every few days or whatever. So the leaf wants more, so it gets greedy and it becomes bigger and bigger, so it gets more free carbohydrates. In doing so too, whatever sunlight is available will have a bigger solar panel to catch more energy. Same principle. The bigger the panel, the more energy.
1: Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, What else in the garden, Wally, because it's a busy time?
0: Yeah. um, Well, everybody should have their – brassicas in, planting seeds. Um, I've got carrots in. Uh, they've all sprouted. Um, dwarf, oh,
1: you're making me envious. I put my carrots in, nothing yet.
0: Uh, dwarf beans, except the bloody birds. My oh. God, I, I I have this lovely bed with beautiful compost there and and sowed the seeds and so forth, watered them down and go out next day and, and what is undulating mess, birds decided that they uh, there were seeds in there and they were going to have a big chomp up, of course. So I had to go down to Mida 10 and get some bird netting and put across the what's the name and stop the damage. But, yeah. of course, seeds, instead of being nicely planted out, they're all over the place now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've had... Um two or three of my potatoes sprout which I'm very excited about I hope it's not going to stop at two or three and I was so over the moon and I carefully pushed in the dirt because I'm a loving I'm a loving Gardener of my little plants to bring that up to the to the leaves to mount start the mound but we had snow Wally and um, to be fair, down where we are, it was just a light sprinkling, but my goodness, it was very, very cold. Right. And the leaves have curled up a bit and look a bit off-colour, a bit black, a bit black.
0: Right. Uh, well, the- I've got a pinch of cold, yeah. Some of the cells in the leaf are frozen as a result of the cold and the snow, um, but the plants will come away. Um, okay. No great problem. Ideally... At this time of the year, if you're going to have a late frost and you're still in the process of covering the foliage, so you get a bigger crop, um, before nighttime comes in the afternoon, you go out and you put some soil over the top, right? So yeah, they the- cover. Soil okay. is a perfect insulator, and it doesn't matter if it snows even.
1: I should have done that, but of course, being new to the business, because I knew it was gonna snow and I made sure we were warm, and I forgot about my little potatoes. I'll give them a bit of a shot of MBL too. That'll perk them up, and maybe oh, some yeah. molasses. Yep. Um, tell me, uh, in your email you were talking about what you need to do with the roses
0: now, Wally. Yeah, um, this time of the year, when, well, there's two aspects to it. It depends where you are, and it depends – whether you have to water or not, and it depends whether there's uh, chlorination or chlorinated water in your hose uh, tap outside. Um, if that's the case, you really need to get a housing filter put on because that will upset the um, microbes and so forth in the soil, and your roses will be more prone to rust and. Uh, black spot, etc, etc. There's a a program that you can use, which I've suggested, particularly people who in the past have used uh, the likes of rose fertilizer, nitrofosca blue, and um, sprays such as shield, um, which have all deteriorated the immune system of the plant and made the plant more vulnerable to disease food for roses look the best thing you can use if you can get it is some horse manure it's an old, old-fashioned thing horse manure around your roses right um if you can't get horse manure um, sheep manure pellets blood and bone but they should be covered over with a bit of compost right because particularly blood and bone because left sitting on the top of the soil in sunlight, it bakes and it's uh, not really available. So cover it over. There's a program I suggested some years ago, which was a um, two-weekly program. One was using a product called Perfection, P-E-R-K-F-E-C-T-I-O-N, Perk fiction because the commercial product is called Perk. So we adapted that name. Um, That's used only once a month. That works from the inside of the plant, building up the immune system, right? Your magic botanic liquid, of course, is also used um, in conjunction with it in the same spray. You can use Microsin if you wish, uh, which has also got um, molasses in it. and. If you've got an insect aspect such as aphids you can add some of our wally's neem tree oil to it right now a weekly sorry once a month spray uh would be ideal um using all that but with the perfection if you use it too often uh it can stop the growth of the plant so with that one you leave it out for the second. So a two-weekly spray, one two-week, with perfection, MBL, and then the following one, just the MBL.
1: So this is a consequence of applying the wrong chemicals to your roses, even though you think you're doing the right thing?
0: Yeah, well... In the past, and I don't think it's available anymore, we used to have a product called Shield from Yates, right? And Shield um, had a fungicide and an insecticide. The insecticide was actually orthene. Orthene's been banned because orthene was a chemical used in the First World War for killing people in the trenches. right? So um, it was quite effective at killing insects, of course, and not too good for your health um, when you're spraying. But um, those chemicals might fix a problem, like they might kill the insects or they might fix the fungus disease initially. But because nature is very resilient, what happens is they become... um, resilient to the chemical so even though you spray them on a regular basis it doesn't kill them anymore
5: mm. they've
0: learned to overcome the problem so you waste your time this is why in days gone by when those chemicals were widely used they used to have shield and then they used to have super shield and you, one week you'd spray with one the next week you spray with the other right okay and that was two different chemicals. But at the same time, the plants suffered. Now, there's a story a chap told me, because I've been writing in papers for many, many years, he actually read about this uh, formula for doing the roses. His parents on a farm were great rose enthusiasts, and they had literally hundreds of roses, all different varieties so forth right when they passed it became his job to look after the roses and every year he had problems he was using the shield and super shield and rose fertilizer and nitrofosca blue nitrofosca blue is uh, not a very nice product actually it's, it does more harm than it does good and it reached a point that he felt like getting the tractor out and mowing the whole lot into the ground because they're always looking horrible, right? He read this article when he was on holiday and one of the papers so I used to write for. It. And he said, okay, I'll give that a go. My last shot. He rang me up. He said, after one season, the roses are just about as good as my parents had them. It's my brought goodness. them back from being real horrible to real beautiful. And, of course, it's magic, botanic, liquid, the perfection, uh, m- uh, micro that he was using on the plants to great advantage.
1: So that's why you have such an appreciation, Wally, of what you're putting into your system, because you see it <clears throat> with your plants, like the chlorinated water, the wrong chemicals, um you might be fixing one problem but making another so you have to have a certain what's the word empathy sympathy for the intricacy of what you're dealing with 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 well, life
0: the same thing applies with us right we get an, an infection the doctor says here's some antibiotics go for it you know now it'll clean up the infection but it also destroys our natural uh <laughs> yes What's the name? And so we're yes. left in a situation where our own um what is it it's not the cells, it's uh microbes and so forth in, in our gut, etc. That it's been adversely affected. So you've got to recolonize them again. So you yes. feed them up with some yogurt or whatever to get yes. the population back up.
1: Yes. What about our lawns, Wally? What should we be looking at with our lawns coming away in spring?
0: Right, okay. Um, The first most important thing with lawns is the cutting of them. It's most important that you don't sculpt the lawn. In other words, we say for a good lawn, you only cut the top third of the grass in any one cut. And that doesn't matter matter if it's a foot high, you only take the top third off, right? And then you can go back a few days later and take another third off. The reason being is if you cut low, it prevents the grasses, it, it knocks them back, right? They can handle it. They'll come again. But if you cut them a bit higher, think about this. Animals grazing on paddocks of grass only eat the top of the grass. They don't eat the bottom of the grass, unless the grass has got too short, of course. Um, And as a result of that, the grass will actually um, grow new leaves because it's like cutting the end off a branch. It causes more branches. So the same thing applies with grass. Grass is the only plant in nature that I'm aware of that loves to be cut. (laughs) and <laughs> it, it thrives on being cut and the reason is simple because animals from millions of years ago have been foraging on grass and grass has said oh this is so good come and eat some of me <laughs> because it will make me grow better yeah Right. so with your lawn cutting the top third off each time you mow so you're not scalping the lawn right which allows weeds to get in if you've had a situation where you've got a lot of weeds in your lawn and so forth, there are um, lawn um, herbicides like turf fix, etc., which you can spray. They don't kill the grass unless the grass is very young. Um, so any grass has to be a good six months old from seed, and then it's not going to be unduly affected. The lawn should not be in stress. In other words, it shouldn't be dry and so forth. It should be growing quite nicely. And then you apply your chemical. The problem with that, of course, is the lawn clippings will have the chemical in them, right? Which is a herbicide. Now, if you were to put that around your roses or um, your beans, um, you get some very funny-looking growths happening. Because the herbicide even though it's low and it's what's name people take that those grass clippings of course to the recycling place where they recycle them and this is one of the dangers of recycled compost that you get the compost and the herbicide is still active a lot of those herbicides are active for about six months or mm. so right the best thing to do with your grass clippings if you've used a herbicide on your lawn, is to put them under established trees and shrubs because it will tend to help uh, smother and kill any uh, annual weeds that are growing underneath. So that's a good way to to use them up. And the amount of herbicide doesn't affect the big trees, your beech trees, etc., etc. Mm. Mm. So after you've got rid of the weeds. Um, it's not a bad idea to over your lawn. If you want a weed-free lawn, you've got to have a lawn that's got a dense carpet of grass because then seeds coming in can't land on the soil and establish. So you reduce your weed problem. To do that, you scarify the lawn, and that's a special rake or machine, which you can hire the machine, which – cuts into the uh, soil and lifts up all the debris that's in the soil and leaves lines uh, like little furrows in which when you get your seed and you want to get a good lawn seed, and a good lawn seed is unfortunately not easy to come by. You really need to go to um, a place like Evans Turf and get a seed from them because they supply seeds to the green keepers who do the fields and the bowling greens, et cetera, et cetera. Their seed is fresh and it's perfect. It's good germination and excellent seed. Um, The stuff you buy in the supermarket or elsewhere is not necessarily the same quality, right?
1: So that was Evans
0: Turf. Evans Turf?
1: E-V-A-N-S.
0: Yes, yeah, you find them on the internet. Um, um, There are one or two others uh, which are very good too, but generally speaking, uh, the common lawn seed that you find uh, is not necessarily so good by by any means. Because lawn seed, for instance, for the greenkeepers, it has to be no longer than a year old, Right. So what happens quite often is once the seed um, that hasn't sold and been used gets up to a year, they throw it away or they give it to some other company who sell it to you. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
5: Um,
0: I I remember reading a consumer report when consumer was really active in days gone by. And they got every brand of lawn seed um, on the market for home gardeners. One particular brand and one particular variety had no actual uh, grass seed in it, it was only weed seeds. It was a whole bloody bag with sweet seeds.
1: Oh my, oh, that is unbelievable. Yeah. I'm gonna start doing that when my I don't get a good result. I have found lawn quite hard to sow and quite hard to raise, and I'm gonna plant a bit of lawn, so that's this is uh of relevance to me. Um <clears throat> when you mow your lawn, Wally, how low should you cut it?
0: Um in what's the name? Just a moment, I'll get me metric ruler here. Ideally, you shouldn't be probably much under five centimeters. Maybe Two four inches. centimeters, five centimeters, round about yeah. there.
1: Two inches. Yeah. My goodness, because when I mow it, I think, oh, I'm gonna mow this hard because I'll be back. Here. <laughs> I'll be back here next week otherwise. <laughs> so I tend to knock hell of it, And that's not making for a good lawn
0: no because it allows weeds to get in weed seeds and germinate it also weakens the grass so you if you've got a a nice dense mat of grass um it looks good and it doesn't require you to mow quite so often there's periods of time like In the spring, of course, it'll come away. Summertime, it's slow. You don't mow so much. And then in the wintertime, once again, the same thing applies. You don't mow so much.
1: And what about when you have those seemingly damp patches and you get all that moss in them?
0: Right. Okay. Moss in lawns, Um, they often say, you use sulfate of iron for the moss, right, and you sprinkle that over and in your lawn fertilisers that you buy, they have a certain amount of um, sulfate of iron uh, for that particular purpose. And that works for a point. It burns the uh, moss, but it doesn't actually kill it. So it comes again very quickly, right? We have a product called Wally's Moss and Liverwort Control. And for your sphagnum-type moss in the lawn, I'm having problems with my phone here. Sphagnum-type moss in the lawn, you use that. Now, to use that to be effective in your kill, you've got to adjust your sprayer so it's a bit of a, um, on the nozzle, it's a bit of a, a jet, and you shoot it. And the same with liverwort, you shoot it, and then it works perfectly. It doesn't hurt the grass at all, and that will kill completely the moss.
1: So you sort of got to drive it into the plant.
0: Yeah, yeah, to make it work. And if you just missed it, you get a bit of a result, but you won't get a good kill, right? Mm. Which means uh if you've got a lot of moss in your lawn, you're going to have to go back um after... The initial lots died off and do the bits you missed and hit them. A thing happens in your lawn too which is called thatch. Now thatch is a debris that builds up on the surface of the soil and when you walk on the lawn it's got a spongy effect. You feel it kind of spongy, right? And, And if you were to cut into your lawn and take a side profile you'll see the soil debris and the grass growing up through the debris that debris actually holds moisture um, which weakens your lawn too because the debris um holding moisture the grasses roots tend to come back up into there for the moisture Because it's not penetrating down. You're not getting water into deep water as it should be. So you've got to get rid of the thatch. Two ways to do it you can use a rake, a special dethatching rake, which has got um, thin tines on it, which you scrape through the lawn and that just rips out. Or you can, if you've got a big lawn, you can go from a higher centre. Some of them have a dethatcher which is like a motor mower, but it's got these um, things that just rip the thatch out. It, it rips you a bit of your grass and so forth at the same time, of course, But um, and it, you end up with literally catches and catches and catches full of rubbish to get to dispose of. After you've de-thatched your lawn, that's when you oversow. That's when you throw out your fresh lawn seed and then lightly water. And those grooves in the ground that it's created will be ideal for the seeds to fall into, watered into, and they will germinate and thicken up your grasses. If you don't want to do the um dethatching that way, we have a product called Thatch Buster. Now, Thatch Buster is a bit like microsin, it's a stronger formulation. And it feeds the microbes in the soil that eat up the debris.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: And so you spray the lawn with um, thatch ruster, using non chlorinated water, of course, or you apply it with a lawn buoy. And it will eat up, given good conditions, which means a bit of moisture, a bit of warmth, at a whole inch of thatch in a month.
1: Wow. And um, tell me, whenever I go to look at grass seed, there's a lot of different varieties of grass seed. Does it matter that when I come to oversow, I use a different grass seed?
0: Um, It depends what sort of lawn you want. It depends on shade, sun, um, conditions. So just get
1: a grass seed for your conditions and you'll be fine.
0: Ideally, yeah, yeah. And and because there's different mixes of rye and so forth, um, which are going to be better in some situations than in others. Um, One thing, interestingly enough, is some lawn seeds are coated, right? They put a coating on them, and the coating can be as a fertiliser, it could be as a fungicide, it could be even as an insecticide against grass grub, right? Now, the coating adds to the weight of the seed. So if you're buying a kilo of lawn seed and it's coated, you only got half as much actual seed as you would do if you was uncoated Uh. because it's sold by weight, right? Now, green keepers, except in very special circumstances, would laugh at you putting um, coated lawn seed on you. Lord, because, A, hey, you're not getting this, the number of seeds you should do and the coating is basically not necessary unless there is a real problem.
1: Good what? tips, Wally. Good tips. Oh, my goodness. you! It's no wonder we call you the professor. Now, before we close, Wally, have we got anything else that should be burning in our minds as we are looking at our garden? Or are we um, up to date?
0: Well, weeding, of course, because the springtime, weeds are going to proliferate. Um, the best thing to do with weeds is, well, the tendency is to pull them out. If the ground is moist, uh, nice wet times after rain and so forth, it's relatively easy to pull out weeds. If it's dry, it's hard, right? But in actual fact, the very best way is to use a carving knife and you cut just underneath the soil cutting the top of the weed off right yeah leaving the roots underneath um, and you cut below the crown so even with perennials, they won't come away again because they've lost that um, top crown the roots in the ground will rot and feed the plants right Yep. besides that The weeds that grow in in your gardens have actually taken a lot of goodness out of your soil, and you can treat them as what we call a fodder or green crop. So after you cut them off below the surface of the soil, you lay them down on the soil, and they will disappear in a matter of uh, a few days or a week or so, and all that goodness will go back in the soil. Well,
1: I did that myself, Wally. (laughs) I got down with my little pocket knife, blunted it, but – I cleaned up some weeds, and I was shocked. Like within a day, it was hot after our snow. They were looking like all shriveled up, and man, you hardly know they were there. You know, yeah, yeah. And that I I have found that so much better, and and certainly pulling them out, you just left with a big hole. Yeah, true. Yeah, and, and, and then you're throwing your best soil away with the plant.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah, because it's stuck to the roots, yeah. um, unless it's very wet, of course. But no, um, the captain. What's that? And if it's a little wee weeds so that just germinated, all you need to do with your knife is just scrape it across mm. the top of the soil, yes. and, and you're taking them out.
1: I've got a good. I've got a good raw garlic that I'm very excited about, and that's doing well. My broad beans, I only got about fifty percent. I don't know what I did wrong with them, but everything else in my garden, thanks to you, Wally, is looking tremendous. I'm going to look at Evans for some grass seed that I need, and I'm going to study more the autopot, because I think that sounds a good idea. And Wally, you have a great day, and thank you so much for sharing with us. Oh, I almost forgot. People should ring Wally. Um, on 0800 466 464 if they've got some problems or they need some gear or they can email Wally WallyJR at Garden News 1N in the gardennews.co.nz or just Google uh, Wally Richards Professor Wally Richards, Gardener and he will pop up. Wally, you're a treasure to us. Thank you so much for making us better people through gardening.
0: No problem, love it. (laughs)
1: there you have it ladies and gentlemen that's uh, Wally Wally Richards our gardening guru oh my goodness he's suffering from a cold I'm suffering from a cold I don't know if you can catch him over the internet but I bet like me he's just toughing it out because um, we don't take all that stuff just like we know that it's not good for our plants you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde Radley Check Radio send me a text 2057 email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. thank you for listening
0: Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything, from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening, and download the RCR app now. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit, with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster.
1: You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Coming up, we have Tane Webster and Politics Explained. Huh, who can explain politics? But if you've got some questions, send them to us, 2057 for a text, inbox at radleycheck.radio for an email. Tane, good morning.
2: Good morning. So we've got a lot of talk online in, in, in terms of is contact uh, to us as well, people asking about the negotiations that are going on currently. So the special votes have been counted. Uh, They're all in Wellington meeting. Take us into the room. What would it be like in there right now?
1: Amazingly cordial. Uh, One of the things that's extraordinary about politics is um, sitting around the cabinet table or sitting around negotiating um a coalition deal is remarkably cordial because no one's no one's looking at you and politics has become so much theater and how things appear that a lot of it this won't be a surprise to listeners is an act but when you close the door and start talking a sense of responsibility falls upon everyone because you have a responsibility to form a government and lead the country and everyone feels it right no doubt about it and everyone becomes a better version of who they are because of that responsibility so For all the talk about Winston Peters and David Seymour not getting along, uh, poor Luxon being like a a dad with two teenagers fighting, uh, it won't be like that. They will be trying to make it work for the country. Um, I'm sure that's true for the left side of politics as well as the centre-right. Now, having said that, it's very, very tough because National campaigned on its policies and what it wanted to do. ACT has campaigned on its policies and what it wanted to do. And Winston Peters campaigned on his policies and what he wanted to do. So you've got the policy dimension. And National won't want to give a blank check and say, oh, yeah, no, that sounds a good policy because the devil will always be in the detail. And so that's tough. Setting up those policies is extremely tough. And it's hard to do in advance of advice. So you can imagine, oh, you know, um, name a policy. Um, Oh, we want charter schools. And you say, well, how do these charter schools look? well, we're not quite sure, but we want charter schools. And then, well, I'm not going to sign up to charter schools unless I see the detail and have official advice on how it's going to work. And so suddenly you can't get that full agreement because it's all a bit pie in the sky. So the policies are very, very hard to do. So, for example, what we did, uh, when I negotiated with the National Party and the Maori Party, is we'd say, well, look, all we want is an opportunity to develop the policy and for you to consider it. Which sounds a bit weak Need, but we figured we'd have such a good argument that we would win it by virtue of the argument. And that's how we did three strikes. We didn't say to the National, you have to agree to three strikes or else, because they really didn't know how it would work. We said, We've got to, we want to develop the legislation, and for you to give a good look at it. And when they looked at it, they said, ah, that makes sense, (laughs) right? So that's that's the policy front. And, of course, you've got this interesting thing that National and ACT have been negotiating, obviously, and now Winston Peters has come into the picture with the counting of specials in a stronger position. But ACT will obviously want to know what's been conceded to New Zealand first because they may not want to sign up to those policies. And so it becomes a sort of three-way sort of deal. So you can imagine, for example, uh, New Zealand first wanting to do their traditional policy of having a fund for the provinces where Shane Jones travels around the country like he did with Labour, handing out money to businesses. I'm sure ACT would have a very strong philosophical disagreement with that policy. Because I'd say that's, you know, borderline corruption or sort of thing. Politicians shouldn't be walking around handing out money. And so that's tough, right? Back and forth, back and forth. Oh, my goodness. The other tough thing is you've got to decide places. So AC might go in there and say, well, we expect two or three cabinet posts at this level and these portfolios, Right. But imagine they get all that nutted down, and then New Zealand First comes in with four at a more senior level, and the media are going to write that up as New Zealand First won and act lost. So again, it becomes this back and forth about places and positions. And this is very tough for Christopher Luxon, because every ministerial post or job he gives to New Zealand First or to act means kicking one of his own members in the guts because they had their eye on that job, right? And it sounds tedious, but it's all part of the process. Now, for ACT and New Zealand First, they're absolutely at their strongest now because National was coming to them to put the deal together. Once the deal's agreed and the Governor-General sworn them in, Christopher Luxon is prime minister, he's got the numbers in cabinet, and they're weakened politically. So they've got to get as much as they can for the good of the country in their view now, because after the negotiations, it becomes a lesser thing. And I'm not saying they're doing this to bolster their ego or all the rest of it, right? Even when assume people are in politics for all the right reasons, they'll push these policies because they think they're good for New Zealand. They want to have a ministerial post in a particular portfolio because they think it's good for New Zealand. And that's what's going on there. It's 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 very, very, very tough. Um but um there will be goodwill, surprisingly goodwill. Um, and Winston's not the irascible person in private that he appears in public.
2: Right. Well, and what about the details with the uh, different positions that are possible? Where, like, there's been articles saying that ACT might go on the cross benches.
1: I think that would be likely, and I say that would be likely because that's what I would do. So, if I was the leader of ACT, I have no input into ACT. I have no contact with that, Mm. Um, I'm out of politics. But if I look at the situation, I would say this could become a fought government because um, I think it's gonna be a difficult government. Uh, I think with the greatest respect, Winston Peters is difficult in a coalition and um, he's difficult to nail down. He's difficult to get agreement to things um and so as you go along um you can't get a snap you couldn't ring winston up and say hey winston we've got this important legislation what do you think and he'll say oh i'll need to have a look at it fair enough uh we've got a briefing tonight what do you think after that night i'm still thinking about it and so it's tough Right. Because he sort of, he's very, he plays a longer game than what you would be doing if you're prime minister. Um, He's not necessarily open with his caucus colleagues. My favorite example of this was we were in Parliament one night and Winston Peters, maybe he was supporting Helen Clark, I can't remember, uh, but they were there. Maybe they were on the crossbenches like us. And I suddenly realized that uh, Labour government was short of numbers and would need New Zealand first. And I called out to Ron Mark, who was their whip. I said, Ronnie, are you guys voting for this? He said, I'm not sure. I said, what? (laughs) How can you not be sure? These things get discussed in caucus. Well, I'm not sure. Like, these things have been discussed for months. He wasn't sure. He said, but don't worry. The boss is coming down to give a speech shortly. Winston Peters walked into Parliament, gave a fantastic speech. It was a fabulous speech and then walked out. And I said, hey, Ronnie, are you voting for this or are you not? He said, well, you heard the speech. I said, I did. I didn't know whether Winston was for it or against it. He said, neither do I. So even at the last minute, it wasn't clear what Winston was going to do. And there was a vote coming up within 30 minutes. So that's quite difficult. So I think it's going to be a difficult government. And if I was at I will say I would keep my distance by saying I'll give confidence in supply. That is to say, I'll vote for your budget, guaranteed. I'll give confidence that Chris Luxon is to be the Prime Minister and form a cabinet, but I won't go into cabinet. And that means every piece of legislation that comes before the House, if you can't get Labour and the other parties to support it you'll need the act party support and you'll need to sell it to us case by case and so the power of act would continue right through the three years it couldn't be trampled over by a poorly run government and it would have some power to stop dopey bad legislation and it would have some power to improve legislation to make it better to make it work because their vote would be required does that make sense Yeah, we were in that position with Jenny Shipley when Winston Peters left um, uh, when Shipley took over from Jim Bolger as Prime Minister we gave support to the National Party to stay in power for stability reasons we never joined the cabinet and we supported legislation on a case by case basis and that meant that we could say look this is a mistake Uh, we don't support that bit take that bit out and we'll vote for it so it is quite a powerful position to be in And um, it's a lot of work, though, because um, every bit of legislation you've got to get advice on and go through with a fine-tooth comb uh, to work out what your position is. Whereas if you're in cabinet, you tend to concentrate on what you do and leave the other stuff unless it's controversial to the minister in charge. Right. So that's what I would do if I was acting.
2: How long do you think it could take, the fastest or the slowest from here? Well, the
1: fastest would be by the weekend. I think it'll be slow.
5: Yeah.
1: Like, really slow. I think it's going to be difficult. And partly the reason is when I negotiated with John Key, uh, the other party was the Mary party, and I got on very well with Tariana And she and I could talk openly and trust each other. Um, I like Peter Sharples, but he really wanted to support Labour and wasn't comfortable with National, but he liked John Key. And so he wasn't as open with us as Tariana was. But what we both knew was that we weren't hunting each other's votes. So they were in the Maori seats and I was in Mm. the general elector plus Epson. I think the difficulty for ACT and New Zealand First is that they're after oftentimes the same voter. And I can imagine at the next election, a centre-right government could win, but either New Zealand first or ACT will disappear. Wow. And what they're negotiating now is who's going to be in the best position for the 2026 election.
2: The fact that they're, uh, I, I agree with you, that they sort of have similar overlapping you know, targeted um, voter voter targets. Do you think that them now being in in going to be coalition partners and over the next three years and with everything that will happen, that's going to make ACT more um, more anti-globalist? so to speak, because that's one of the things that I Winston know. and the First have pushed really well that, that has resonated. That's basically what got them,
1: well, I one of the big know. things that
2: got them across the line.
1: I don't know, because observing David Seymour, who I knew very well as before he was a, uh, an MP, I don't know him well now that he is an MP, but it's very clear by his public utterances that he's after the urban liberal vote. Yeah. and therefore doesn't go along with Winston's conservative anti-globalist agenda. So mm-hmm. I don't think um, there will be that crossover in terms of policy. But obviously well, – that's,
2: that's the thing. It's going to be a massive detriment to their party if they don't because the thing is all that gender stuff that NZ First campaigned on really well, that that's going to probably in the short oh, term great. continue to get worse. It's going to get worse, and so yeah. is the stuff on Farmers. And so is the centralization of control internationally. It's all that all those things are going to get worse. So if you don't campaign, you know, during the election, during the uh, the term on, on those sorts of issues. I mean, I know. And it and it's
1: remarkable to me because David Seymour and indeed Chris Lutzen don't see it. You know what I mean? They're <laughs> so dismissive. And there's no doubt in my mind that Winston Peters Got over the line because he saw it.
5: Yeah.
1: And it got him over the 5%. And of course, it's quite possible that Winston Peters doesn't push it in these coalition deals. That's going to be the key thing.
2: You mean doesn't push
1: well, it? he doesn't he doesn't have in the coalition agreement there's an end to gender ideology in the schools. There'll be no males. Um, competing in female sports, whatever they call themselves. There will be an end to the um, Therapeutics Good Act. but not signing up to the World Health Organization. There'll be a proper inquiry, X, Y, Z. All the things that he campaigned on, um, to keep true to that promise, they have to be in the coalition agreement, signed up to by uh, National and signed up to by ACT. He's got to get that, right? To, yeah. to fulfill the promise, mm-hmm. if it's not in the coalition agreement, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. So that's that. You know, this is tough stuff, right? This is tough stuff because Chris Luxon doesn't agree with that. and um, he might say to Mister Peters "I think that's
2: well- where our, that's where our listeners sort of come into it." You know, absolutely, if people got to pressure the the other two well parties that are you know, in uh, on these issues.
1: But it's hard to exert pressure right now because we've just had an election, you see, and they're thinking, well, we've got three years to make it up to you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry to laugh, but it's like, that's how the politicians will be thinking, right? Oh, you can write me emails all you like, right? You've had your vote, now it's my turn. This is why I don't like MMP, by the way, because the promises that get made in the election campaign and what you vote for then get traded away, in a backroom deal, right? It's not like it's not us. We we, we voted for what? Them we voted for these ideas. Will they make it to the coalition agreement? I, I, mean, I feel like so. that's
2: just part of the way it is. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think that's unfair. I think it's just
1: the way it is. I mean, no, I think it's deeply unfair, but there you go. Because like, uh, how
2: would you, how would you fix it? How would you fix that part of it,
1: though? I'd have first past the post.
2: Oh right, yeah, yeah.
1: And so then you vote for a party, and it puts up a comprehensive manifesto, and you hold it to account for that comprehensive manifesto, yeah. not for yeah. what it's doing that day or what it agreed to subsequently. And of course, the other thing about uh, first past the post that I like is it gives you a decisive victory on the night Mm, mm. and it gives you a comprehensive government that the Prime Minister has the numbers, whether it's left or right. Um, Obviously, Jacinda Ardern got the numbers in 2020. But uh, um, it would have been, if we'd had a first-past-the-post vote at that last election, it would have been a landslide to national. And at the moment, it's National trying to cobble together with two separate parties a deal. It, to me, it's not the voters speaking, and I know the voters only get two choices on in an election under first past the post. Basically, there can be third parties. That's true, but it's tough for them. But those voters are hunting your; those parties are hunting your vote and put together more comprehensive manifestos where. The concerns that you and I have get expressed. Mm. But no excuse not to implement them. But you know, that's that's gone. That's gone. First past the post is gone. So we're dealing with this MNP. And to me, it's a somozzle. You know, it's it's it doesn't sit comfortably with me that uh what you voted for now doesn't matter. You know, what matters now is them getting into their position and forming a government and then getting in position for 2020, what will it be, 2026. Um, and for for ACT and New Zealand First, I'd be looking at that and I'd be thinking, we want a centre-right government in 2026 because I'm the ACT party. I can't see two support parties surviving this government.
2: Yeah, it's interesting 3 years. It's like a it's like a, a longer election campaign sort of
1: yeah. So I want to be in a position where I'm getting reported and making a difference. And that possibly is why I have to be only given supply and confidence because if I disappear into cabinet, um Winston will eat me. <laughs> If I'm on the sup, giving confidence
2: supply, I might be able to eat him. Mm, so Is bring that... bring on the 2026 election campaign starting already. Well,
1: you've got to think of it, right? How are you going to be positioned, right? Yeah. Where are you going to be? Um, how can I get, how can I be seen to be delivering for my voters and my potential voters over the next three years? What is my best position to be in? I think that matters. Mm. And it particularly matters because everything I want can be denied to me by the other party. Winston can deny me, or if I'm Winston, it can deny me. It's not enough just to get national on board.
2: And obviously also within that three-party dynamic, there'll be cases where two will gang up on one, potentially. Is that right? Yeah, or well, more?
1: national, what, what National would like to be doing is playing sphere, and they'd like to, we give one to act, and we give one to New Zealand first, we give this to New Zealand first, we give this to act. If you follow what I mean, that's how, that's how um, John Key played act in the Mary Party, because with either one or the other, he had the numbers. So if you wanted to do something that was really right-wing and centre-right, what you'd call free market, you'd go with that. If you want to do something lefty and have a, you know, something what you and I would call racist, you'd go with the Maori party and ACT would oppose it, right? So he could play the each off the other and we could be railing against it, but he had the numbers, or the Maori party could be railing against it, but he had the numbers. Chris Luxon doesn't have that luxury. Um, he needs both of them on board. That's why I think it's going to be a fort government.
2: I guess if in some cases, and we have got to wrap up soon. The the you know, Act and New Zealand First could kind of work together on 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 some issues. You know, potentially like this this treaty referendum. Luxon saying it's divisive. Yeah, Obviously,
1: absolutely, absolutely. But of course, the tricky thing then is ego and votes come into it because you'll be thinking, well. <clears throat> Can we do this in a way that looks good both for New Zealand First and ACT? Or is it going to make just ACT look good or just New Zealand First make look good? And that matters. It matters yeah. for ego, but it matters Process. for political support. And that's the tricky thing because Winston won't want to be supporting a new an ACT initiative, right? Because it makes him look second tier and it'll be the same. It's crazy, I know, right? But this is all part of the dynamic, and that's why I think separating the two, having one in cabinet and one outside, would be a smart play. And the obvious one to have outside is act, because it's a more policy-focused party, and they can do their policy work. And Winston Peters is more, how would I word this, political, you know, more show, more theatre, and he can do that by being in cabinet. And being deputy prime minister or foreign minister or minister and minister of broadcasting. So um, that's how I see it. And I could be, I'm sure events will prove me 100% wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But when you ask for your opinion, you give it your best shot, right?
4: Yeah, you did good.
1: There we go, Tane. That was politics explained. Oh my goodness. Wasn't that great line of Winston Churchill was where politics was the uh, um is the art of um predicting the future and then explaining afterwards why you're wrong. <laughs> so that'll be my job probably next time we're on here, I'll be explaining why I had it all wrong. You're on Rally Check Radio, it's real talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, I guess politics is political at the moment. Give us a text, 2057, email us, inbox at
0: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am.
1: You're on RallyCheck Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me, inbox at Well, I don't think this is a controversial statement. <clears throat> The, the vaccine killed some Kiwis and it injured others. This is acknowledged officially. Only acknowledged, not talked about. And the issue is we don't know just how many were killed by the vaccine, or were injured by the vaccine. Those on, if you like, uh, my side of the argument or our side of the argument thinks it's a lot. Others say, ah, very rare. The narrative is very rare. But they've had to walk back the safe and effective mantra and accept that, yes, officially, some died from the vaccine, because that's what the pathologist and coroner's report said. And yes, there were some people injured. So let's just take the official figures. Isn't that alarming enough? Isn't that scary enough that, let's say, one person died and 10 people were injured? Isn't that enough to say, gee whiz, I wonder how that happened. I wonder how it was that a vaccine that we mandated and presented everywhere as safe and effective ended up killing someone. How did that happen? What was it that killed this person that we officially recognize as dead? And these ones that we officially recognized as injured, how did the safe and effective vaccine injure them? How? What was the mechanism? Where on earth are our political leaders talking about this? Nowhere. Well, to his great credit, Winston Peters did. And I hope and I pray that he hasn't forgotten. Because even if the numbers are very, very small, it's a scandal. If the numbers are bigger, than those acknowledged, words far us for what has gone on. And let's imagine this. Let's imagine that it is just as officially recognized. How come the rest of us that were jabbed escaped the ill consequences that others didn't escape? Or is there something lurking in the population? And we can talk about a lot of political things, and we can talk about the direction of the country, and we can talk about all the things that are happening overseas. But this is at home, here. And I think we have all met the vaccine injured and some of us have met family of those that died how can they be denied how can we live in a New Zealand where this just gets swept under the rug what because it's embarrassing to the politicians to the bureaucracy Why? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have to make sure that it doesn't get swept under the rug and pushed aside just to save the sensibilities of politicians and civil servants because we know people that are injured and we know families who lost a family member through this vaccine. Towned as safe and effective, mandated that if you didn't take it, you'd lose your job or your business, your career, your studies, your sport, your social life. And yet, <clears throat> it killed some and injured others. And no one's looking. No one in government is acknowledging the problem. Well, there's been a change of government, and we've had one politician promise to look into it. And I hope and I pray that in these coalition agreements we see that, not just for the sake of the injured and not just for the sake of those who died, but for all our sakes so that we can live in an open and fair society that respects people and also a society that learns from its mistakes and can look forward to a future where mm. we learn from that, let's not repeat it. Because as it stands, I feel as though we've learnt nothing. And there's a big hole, there's a big gap, there's a big taboo subject. And it's What do we do about the vaccine injured and the vaccine dead? You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Please send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at railwaycheck.radio.
0: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.
1: Oh, we're coming to that favourite part. Uh, you're on Radley Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're coming to the mailbag. What have we got here today? Oh, what good? Michael. Rodney, after your show the other day, it disgusted me and many others, your total one-sided opinion. And you can't deny you don't know about the history of terrorism and crimes against humanity by israel woods, palestinian citizens. As you are and stand with Israel supporters, defend this by not admitting Israel are terrorists. And I can produce hundreds more. If not, and others will call for your resignation, as you clearly are biased and not what RCR and followers stand for. Well, I'm sorry about that, Michael, but I am not an expert, but I do believe in explaining where I stand on an issue and not hiding behind it, and explaining why, and I'm happy to have a debate. Um, I'm sorry, I do my best, right? Maybe I should stick to gardening. Uh, Actually, Ronnie, I can't find your soundbite on what it would take to take over an existing political party as opposed to forming a new party. Can you please direct me to it? Thanks, and keep up the great work, mate. Actually, I don't know what that quote would be, that soundbite, but I always think it's easier these days because they're not mass parties to take over an existing party. You've got head office to contend with with MMP. But I think it would be possible with a group of well-organized supporters. In fact, it would be very easy. easy. Here's Ken. Hi, Rodney. I love your RCR content, in particular your views on politics and policy. I tend to agree with you. The interview with Prof Ryder opened my eyes to how much I didn't know about the past. Like you, I was labelled an anti-vaxxer and banned from society. Thank goodness for VFF and the fellowship they provided along with new friends. Stay strong and keep up the good work. Oh, and I've had uh, some data produced and sent to me by Greg. I'll need to study that because I can't just figure it out on a quick perusal. Uh, Here's one from Anne. Could Rodney please interview Dr. Peter Regan, who is a psychiatrist and has an amazing story to share. He has court cases against the pharmaceutical companies and the damage the medical system has done to so many people. He is 87 years old and he has a wealth of knowledge as he's been fighting the system for years. Uh, Marvellous. Thank you for that, Anne. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I always thought RFK Jr. was a bit fruity, you know, but wrong. And then COVID came along and I read his book. Oh my goodness, he's an amazing guy. And we can so easily be dismissed as fringe. Really, now you want to bag Luxon? Not interesting listening. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't remember. I I probably said about Luxon that I want to like him, but I struggled to because he seems so bland, woke and left wing. But I wish him all the best as Prime Minister. Will you be thrashing out hundreds of dead civilians overseas all day or finally push for justice for the thousands killed in our country? A Half-truth is still a lie. I'm sorry, that makes. I can't make sense of that. I apologise. Guys, Israel is being cleaned out of deep state filth tunnels, trafficking bioweapons labs, just like Ukraine was. Maybe we could just start saying that and not the misinformation. Also, the chat about Bill Maher. He is... Hugh Hefner's son, I don't know, and the NASA guy, I don't know. Sorry, sorry. Morning, Winston isn't going to be deciding which party will take the reins, so he's not a kingmaker this time. Maybe not, uh, but he could because he could go with Labour and make Chris Hipkins the king, but he may not be having that conversation. He may not be in a position to. Taranga city councillors are finishing up soon and will not be accountable the three waters already decided a year ago they're going to fluoridate and started preparing for it they're too far up the road won't won't accept their aid in judgement very hard to get politicians to admit a mistake very hard someone saying great choice of song tell me where the heart is read your conversation on Israel and Palestine the other day I believe that two wrongs don't make a right and they're both responsible for atrocities. When children on both sides have been murdered, it is not acceptable. Just my opinion. Well, thank you for saying it. it's just your opinion. And it is terrible. War is a terrible thing. Rodney Penfold did a doco in 2015 for MediaWorks, which allowed the voices of the Garda cell injured New Zealand girls. She seems to have amnesia about this. Would the same doco be allowed today if one swapped the words COVID vaccine, Fiona? No, I don't think it would be, fair. I think to ask the question is to answer it. Just been listening to Ali Evans's interview. Such an inspiration to stay strong together on this journey we've found ourselves on. Last weekend, I went to listen to Casey Costello at the Port Waikato electorate and Winston Peters. She's someone we would like to have in Parliament. Honest, grounded and whack. It was so good to hear. Winston Peters is getting stuck into the MSM at present. If you got Minister of Broadcasting portfolio, I for one will enjoy what unfolds. Keep up the good work, Ange. Yes, Ange, Casey Costello in Parliament's is fantastic. Uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. And I'd love to see Winston as Minister of Broadcasting. <laughs> like you. Hi, uh, this is from and hi, Rodney. I've been really enjoying your stuff on RCR, especially Wally's gardening tips. I'm so pleased that you're using your superpowers for good instead of evil, and that we have you on the side of goodness, truth, and justice with a smiley face. I don't know about superpowers. Um, your analysis, re, Ali Evans, in the media was absolutely spot on. Brilliant. I love that you're able to see through the media and politicians with such clarity, and also that you're able to share your interpretation so eloquently. And have the platform to do this. Keep up the awesomeness and happy gardening. Well, thank you, Marion. Well, will. Hi, Rodney. If you listen to Scott Ritter, you hear the other side of the story. Trevor, Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter. I know the name that brings that bell. I'll google it. Dear Rodney, Israel fence defense force is not present. No way. Israel ex-defense personnel have been screaming on the internet. Well, two people I've seen, that in no way is that section not defended. Yet that day it was not defended. That does not happen from a mistake of a national holiday personal stand down yes rob i i um i don't know i've heard that and i'm not saying you're wrong because after that COVID experience i hope i have my ears open rodney it is not the gluten in the bread it's the sprays and gene modification of the grains could well be rodney we went to parliament because we're not listened to that is why hummus had to attack just to get people to listen Israel have been arresting Palestinians and murdering them, but because the media are owned by Israeli supporters, they make themselves out to be victims. Now, sort of like two sets of victims that they're playing, isn't it? And, um, tough. Very, very, very tough. Uh-oh, I've slipped up from Lincoln. Like, Rodney, 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 will you never learn? Please stop interrupting. I tried to listen to Solomon Hilson, said in your interview with him and got so frustrated. Every other time he responded to your question, you interrupted him. He could not respond. I gave up listening before it finished. We hear you every day. We don't need to hear you talk over the people you interview. It is those people we tune in to hear. Please heed them many requests to stop interrupting. Hmm. I hang my head. Tor, remember, was the guy on the South Island independence, and I did get excited. Hi, Rodney. This is from John Fisher. Another point to make is that Israel is illegally occupying Palestine. I don't agree with taking civilian lives, and whether or not Hamas actually did is still in question. Well... However, under international law, any country under illegal occupation has the right to armed rebellion. Whether or not people agree with UN is up to them. But please read the UN link on illegally occupied Palestine. It's not very long. Yeah, I don't rely on the UN. Illegal op- occupation? I don't even know what that means. Because in a funny way, do we occupy New Zealand legally, or are we just here? So lovely to listen to your station. So packed full of unmissable content, and it really has saved my sanity. I, like so many others, have felt isolated and misunderstood during the past three years. Yes, join the club. I would love Rodney to send me his bread recipe. Oh, I've just written it out quickly. I would want to give it a go. I hope he includes how to grow a culture. Yeah. Rodney is my kind of person. His calm and balanced outlook in the world is a reflection of a life lived and experience gained. Thank you for being so gracious with your words for the difference you make. Oh, you're so sweet, Chrissy. I also love the expression bad things happen when good people sit back and do nothing. Quite profound. Thank you, Chrissy. Um, the bread recipe, I've actually put put that out. And funny enough, a recipe is one thing, the technique is another. And my favorite. demonstration of technique is ken forkish f-o-r-k-i-s-h ken forkish he's a wonderful baker and he's put great little clips on youtube showing you how to mix fold and shape and bake bread the only thing i would say is everything's great to him to follow but i never get the lift that they say they get you know when you ferment the bread and it rises and they say oh wait till it rises twice in size or two and a half times, in my experience, uh, we don't get that rise with New Zealand flour. If I get maybe 50%, I call it quits, and use that. If you over-ferment it, you won't get a nicely shaped loaf. So Ken Forkish, and he's written a great book, F-O-R-K-I-S-H. That was Mailbag. Please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you. I love your messages. And I can handle the criticism now because I've also got the love. So thank you for that. And criticism and questioning is good because that shows you that we're having a debate and we're talking to each other. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for tuning in. Oh, Wally Richards. It's so wonderful. You, every time I listen to Wally, I just want to get out in the garden and start gardening, get gardening, do more. He's so wonderful and enthusiastic. And Roger Beattie talking about farmlands. I'm going to try and get someone on from farmlands because there may be a perfectly reasonable explanation for this, but it just sounds off to me that you're buying something in their store and they're pay- the supplier is paying them to supply it. And so, what is it, the supplier with the most money or gives the most money to farmlands gets to sell you their product and the others don't. Might have a better product. Just, just doesn't sit right. And then, of course, we had Tanae Politics Explained. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what's really happening behind the scenes, but it's fun to speculate. And uh, we'll see. We will see. It's going to be fascinating what's in those coalition documents and how the configuration of the government is put together. I'm quite excited about this. I'm more excited about this, funnily enough, than the election because we'll get to see the outcome of negotiations. There we are. That's us for this week. Uh, Remember, you can send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio, and I'm so looking forward to talking next week. Thank you for having me along.
0: On RCR, reality chip radio.